Welcome to Response Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, and I'm here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Yeshiva at Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. Good morning. Good morning, Avi. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, it's been a it's been a busy summer here at Hadar. We have our our summer program, and this week our executive seminar. Yeah, a lot of great stuff. Amazing, we fit in the time to do this, but. Halacha and Torah calls. It's a jam-packed Beit Midrash, um, but I'm excited to make time to answer this question. We have a question we get to tackle today, which is zooming in into a ritual practice. And the modern element of this question, I think I will call modern-day shul architectural structure. Mm. <laughs> um, so we'll see, we'll see where this takes us. Great. The questioner writes, on High Holiday Musaf, when it is time for Alenu and the Avoda service during the repetition of the Amida, in some communities, people move the Amud, which is the lectern, so that the leader can bow low in full prostration. This is not always possible given the room setup. In my community, it would be difficult or impossible to move the Amud. So what's the best approach? And then they give some options. I know that some favor having the leader jump backwards with their feet together, but not everyone can do this easily. What are your thoughts? Is jumping the right practice? Jumping presumably to keep your feet together, I'm assuming. Is one step backwards permissible? Is it better to stay put and do a less thorough bowing? Are there other solutions? Okay. So it's a pretty technical question we have, but um, we'll see if there's more behind it. Yeah, let's see if we can draw out some of the maybe question behind the question. But I think there's something we, – we had an earlier question about kind of how you stand. Right. We once had a question about do I have to stand with my feet together if it causes me pain? So listeners can go back and dig that episode up if you're interested in that element. Yeah, and I think the fact that we would even get a question like that shows that there's this very strongly ingrained feeling of people with kind of traditional practice around the Amida of, oh, my God, like your feet have to be together. Mm -hmm. like, I'm only maybe because I have chronic pain. I can have uh, an exemption. Mm -hmm. which from, gives... from your tone of voice, I'm going to assume that you think it's not that serious. Well, I'll start actually <laughs> with saying totally in terms of how I was raised and growing up, I totally have that in a very strong way. Mm -hmm. uh, feeling like actually when I'm in the Amida, if I were to like move my feet I don't know. It's like the walls would come crashing mm -hmm. down. And if I step a little outside of that. No pun intended. Ah, uh, nice. That it feels like by having my feet together, I'm constructing a certain reality and I break the script if I move them mm -hmm. in a way that feels like something's been shattered. And actually, it's always very difficult for me when I'm praying in spaces where, you know, there may be different Jews there with different degrees of background in practice and how much they even know what the Amida is or were raised with certain norms about it. When I see someone like clearly otherwise in the middle of the Amida, you know, clearly having a moment of, oh, I forgot something outside and they go and walk. I'm like, yeah. freak out. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you my reflection on that, my image of that when I was a little girl at Camp Ramah, which is where I really learned to daven the Amida. I used to feel like, oh, I'm leaving a message on God's answering machine. And if I move, then it's like I hung up. It's like the message is over. I missed my chance. You got to get it all in before you sit down or move to the next thing. 
Um, that was my my little girl image of what's happening there. Yeah. That's great. So this is deeply ingrained, but you are right to detect that I think there is a little more complexity here. Um, let's see if we can trace the history of this. Like, where does this even come from? Okay, so the this we're talking about right now is the need to not take a step while you're standing davening your Amida. That's not right. Not yet addressing the question of what's this bowing about and why do we need to do that? Yeah, let's build up to that by just asking... Why would you not be moving or what's going on with not moving in the Amida? What are the parameters around it? And then are there exceptions? Okay, and where does great. this Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur stuff fit into it? Great. So there are actually two competing sources kind of at the earliest level of this discussion. Uh, they're both in the Tosefta, early collection of materials from around the time of the Mishnah. It's about 2,000 years ago. One source says you should not be bowing down to the ground in the Amida. The only time you bow in the Amida is in the first blessing and the second to last blessing, and all you're doing there is an upper body bow. This is about the high holidays? Or this is this about is any general. day of the year. So the way okay. for those of our listeners who are familiar with the body language of the Amida, this is pretty much what we do on a daily basis, which is to say the Amida opens with a bow, that next, uh, that next occurrence of it is at the end of that first blessing. And right. then in the second to last blessing, at the beginning with the words modim, and then baruch Hashem atov shimcha ulechana elehodot, there's a bow. But these are not prostrations of going flat right. to the floor. So for the most part, we don't move our feet. So move it our... seems like moving the rest of the body is okay. It's only moving the feet. Right. But it seems by this text saying... You really shouldn't be bowing that much other than these four times, and it should only be an upper body bow. It seems like a pretty hard and fast rule. You do not move your feet in the Amida no matter what. And that, so that rule is because of not moving your feet? That's Otherwise, we would be doing full prostration? Well, it's not 100% clear, but it seems like it is connected to that, or there's some notion of the Amida is supposed to be somewhat of like a controlled experience. You're kind of standing in place, and you are not meant to be doing all kinds of wild body movements. Mm -hmm. Now, this, you can get the feeling of the contrast here. A different passage in the Tosefta talks about how Rabbi Akiva would bow and prostrate so much during his private Amida that he would end up in a completely different part of the room than where he started. Wow. So he's obviously moving his feet because yeah. he is literally starting in one corner of the room and ending in another corner of the room. And part of the tension in the conversation that we'll now kind of sketch out here is those seem like competing models of what role movement has to play during tefillah, during the Amida. Um, is it basically stand... I don't know, one metaphor you could say, like, soldier at attention, right, mm -hmm. rooted in place? Or is there kind of almost an ecstatic, mystical experience that the whole body gets involved in? Yeah, it also makes me wonder when I'm trying to picture the Rabbi Akiva story, uh, is he davening by himself? Is there nobody else there? How is he not running into people? Um, and, and is that the kind of thing that works only if you're Rabbi Akiva? Or can everybody do that at the same time? Yeah, so the Talmud actually directly takes up what you're asking about who else is there and is actually very clear that, well, when he was with other people he would be, quote-unquote, normal about it. Oh, <laughs> but when he was alone, he would do this crazy thing. 
But at the end of the day, it's the same Amida. So it seems like, great, he had concern. It's either okay or it's not okay. Right. He had concern for maybe not disrupting other people when he was around them. But he fundamentally thought this is something that can be integrated. All right. So that's like maybe the, the larger model question. There's another great text uh, that's just dealing with a case. So it talks about someone who is praying in a public street or a public square, and a wagon starts coming towards them. Hmm, that sounds like <laughs> a good reason to move. Right? So, As far what, as reasons go. What do you do? So it says that you are allowed to move, but then it says, mafsik, but you are not allowed to interrupt. So you can physically move, but you can't interrupt. So that text seems to suggest two things. First of all, ideally, you should not be moving mm-hmm. during the Amida. I'm surprised the text doesn't say don't have it in the middle of a street. Yeah, so we may or may not love that, and there are other texts that suggest you shouldn't do it. But okay, you were there, yeah. or this text doesn't care about that. But it seems like ideally you should not be moving. It's only so you're not, like, run over right. by the wagon. And this is a pretty severe, like, sakana or danger is one of the more extreme reasons why you could have to move. Yeah, and we'll come to another version of that in a second. Though I want to say it's not clear you would necessarily be run over here. It could be the wagon would stop. But uh, it would be very awkward and whatever. Like, but you're in the right. road. So ideally you should stay in place. But when it says, ve'en mafsik, while it authorizes you to move, it seems like the hefsek there, the interruption, is only an issue of speech, but mm-hmm. not one of movement. Meaning it sounds like it's not considered an interruption in the Amida to move physically. Right. It's just don't talk or break it off. Okay, But then you have another passage right after that that says, Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa, who was a kind of interesting rabbinic almost wonder-working type of figure, allowed a snake to bite him rather than be mafsik, rather than interrupting his amida. Now, that there seems like interruption is about moving because the way he would have avoided being bitten was not talking to the snake. Uh, Probably not. He is a kind of figure who is a kind (laughs) of snake-charmy kind of guy, but it seems like the hafsik there, the interruption, can also refer to movement, which is the way he probably would have avoided uh, the snake. So that feels in line with our instinct not to move. Right. So, again, clouded here in the record, right? What is what is actually uh, demanded of us? What are the non-negotiables around the Amida? It does seem like there is a strand that's like, ah, eh, moving's not that big a deal. Like, it's ideal not to move, but it's not a big deal. Just make sure you don't talk. But another one that seems to be saying movement itself is some kind of problem of interruption of the Amida. Yeah. It does feel like it puts the uh, unmovable lectern into perspective when you're comparing it to getting uh, having a horse and buggy run at you ver- or uh, being bitten by a snake. Exactly. Suddenly it seems like we have it pretty good, actually. Yeah. And it is also reflecting the difference between what it is to be in a kind of institutional context of prayer mm-hmm. where you a little bit get to set up the environment as opposed to, I don't know, I'm out in the world. Wherever I got to pray. There's some snakes. There's wagons. You know, who know what I control? Okay, so 
the question then is great. If those are some of like the core texts, if that's the lexicon that everyone's going to deal with. So what are the halachic positions emerge? And so in the Middle Ages, it's really interesting. You have different voices that try to reconcile the, hey, you shouldn't be bowing at all during the Amida with the Rabbi Akiva flailing around the room from one end to another. Mm-hmm. So Rav Yosef of Orléans, uh, who's one of the Tosafot, so he's from medieval France, he kind of sidelines the Rabbi Akiva source. He says, yeah, 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 Rabbi Akiva only did that at the end of his Amida. So he would start his Amida, mm-hmm. be like a soldier in one place. Then after Hamvarecha Ramo Yisrael Bashalom, at the end of the statutory part, then he would go bonkers, flailing all over the room. And that's why you'd find him somewhere else at the end. But even he agreed, you're not allowed to move at all during the Amida. Yeah, it's funny. It makes me think of modern day saying, we had it a meditation circle at the end, but that was at the end. That was different. Exactly. So you can see how that view becomes the basis for... Anyone who wants to say you are not allowed to move during the Amida, they're going to sideline Rabbi Akiva as being irrelevant. Rav Yitzchak of Dampier, who was another one of the Tosafot, he totally rejected that. He said, what are you talking about? Rabbi Akiva is obviously doing this movement in the middle of the Amida. And he interprets the earlier text as saying, no, 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 it's not that you're forbidden from bowing at other times in the Amidah other than the first and the second to last blessing. You're just not allowed to do it at the beginning or end of other blessings. Like at the other places where it says Baruch Atah, like Chonen Hada'at, Chanun Hamarbeli Sloach, these other parts that are in the middle, you shouldn't be bowing at those specific words of Baruch. That should be reserved for these early and late ones. But when you're just like in the middle, you're just like praying for people to be healed, but you haven't gotten to, yet to the end. You can throw yourself down on the floor. You can hmm. move around. And that's what Rabbi Akiva was doing. So that's a totally different approach. And actually, a more almost radical version of that approach is the Rambam's son, Rabbeinu Avram ben Harambam. He said, actually, that text that said you should only bow at the beginning of the first and the second to last bracha was only requiring you to do it then, but you're allowed to bow anywhere in the Amidah. And actually, we have record of he, the Rambam's son, when he davened the Amidah, he went flat down on the ground for every single blessing in the middle of the Amidah. And it's pretty clear he's not, like, keeping his feet together the whole time. Yeah. So it's a totally different model. And and also that last story seems very pro-prostration in terms of What's the priority here when the questioner said, is it okay to do a less thorough bow? It sounds like Avram ben Arambam would say, no, do the more thorough bow and move. What's the big deal? Yeah, he seems to think that is actually the more powerful religious experience. Hard not to see some influence from Islam in his particular context where Mm -hmm. the entire pious environment in which he operates is one in which actually the full prostration down to the ground is the way you actually demonstrate real submission to God. And for those who have done full prostration, we'll get to the Yom Kippur case uh, in a minute, there's no question that there is a power to completely submitting yourself in this like humbled posture of like helpless being just down on your face. Um, That when you stand erect like a soldier at attention, 
Well, you also kind of feel like a soldier in the sense of you're armed, you're in control, and you're not actually subject to someone else's power. Yeah, there's a beautiful Yehuda Amichai poem that people could look up that talks about standing and moving in prayer. He writes about his father would stand still and force God to move is the, is the image in the poem. It's beautiful. So that's the debate in the Middle Ages. And I would say it's fair to assess it as the view of Rav Yosef of Orleans, which was the one that said, you really can't be moving during the Amida itself, generally gets the default upper hand that is to say, that's the way most people begin to think about it, which is really we don't make exceptions for that. Um, but these other views are not ever totally struck down. And you actually get interesting insight into that if you turn now to the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur question. Okay, great. So this notion that during the Avoda, during this moment of public prayer on Yom Kippur, the leader would prostrate. Right, the person leading davening would actually go flat. Comes up, we already hear about it in medieval Germany. The Ravya, Rabbi Eliezer ben Yola Levi, talks about it, and it seems to be, it's it's a reenactment of what's going on in the temple. Right, like that would have happened in the presence of the high priest saying the ineffable name of God on Yom Kippur right. when he came in, out of the in sanctuary. In the sense that the whole Avodah service is a, a reenactment. Correct, though. You could read it as simply a narrative retelling. It's the prostration that gives it the dimension of yeah. a reenactment. Yeah. Okay. The first time I heard Rabbi Mark Baker daven the Avoda service, he did it with so much emphasis, actually. It really experienced it differently as, oh, this is a reenactment. Um, you could feel like it was playing out in a different way. It's, it can be a very powerful ritual. Yeah, so listen to this one, which is an incredible medieval snapshot of a community, communities, it seems, that did something quite dramatic. So the Rivash, Rav Yitzhak Bar Sheshet, who's in uh, North Africa, describes the following. He says, the leader of Yom Kippur Musaf would be standing at the box, the Amud, the place where he was leading davening. And in the middle of the repetition, when he got to this part, he would walk from the middle of the room up to the ark, up to the Aron Kodesh in front of the room, and bow down flat on the floor. Mm -hmm. So not just, oh, I'm inserting this into this Amida. It's like I am walking away across the room and going flat. So that's great precedent for this uh, questioner. <laughs> Except that the Rivash attacks this mercilessly. Of course. <laughs> and says... What are you talking about? The Talmud only licenses people to move when, like, a snake is attacking you or a wagon is coming your direction. But obviously, those are the only exceptions. Otherwise, you can't, like, construct a ritual reason that's going to be meaningful to do this. And he's clearly following Rabbi Yosef of Orleans and that approach that says, no, Rabbi Akiva must have done that stuff at the end of the Amida. There's no justification whatsoever for this practice. But this is a good example where the practice that he's critiquing almost certainly is coming from the other strand of thought, which is actually moving during the Amida is not the biggest deal in the world. And for this powerful religious experience, yeah, just like you move when a wagon comes at you, like obviously you it's would move. It. 
to get people in. Exactly. It's worth it in some way. But the Rivash really comes down hard on this. And in fact, the Ramar of Moshe Yisraelis in the Shulchan Aruch, he scolds Chazanim who move their feet and bow during the repetition and says, it's fine if everyone in the shul does it. Like, that's great. We're happy to have the, yeah. the reenactment by the masses. But the leader should not go down to the floor. Ah, so that's not a case of if, if it requires moving. It's just in general. That's too much movement for the leader. Yeah, the leader shouldn't be moving at all. It's not a question of whether it's worth it. Yeah. It's a question of, is this appropriate? Is this in keeping with the canons of how we manage our bodies during the Amidah? Yeah, we have many communities nowadays where only the leader prostrates. <laughs> That's right. And actually, that may be even what the Rivash is describing happened in the community he did, where uh, one person walks up to the Aron and does right. it. By the time of the Ramah, there's some notion of, well, the whole community has gotten in on this. We'll let them keep doing it. Right. But... The don't, leader don't is take it in away the from Amida. everyone. Right. Because the people who are gathered, they already did their private Amida. So they're kind of in more of a listening mode. But the leader is still in the actual Amida, so it's not allowed there. Like many crackdowns, it does not completely succeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Levush of Mordechai Yafi, who's the same time as the Ramah, he's in Poland, late 16th, uh, early 17th century. He says, even though there's widespread rabbinic objection to the practice, in most places he knows the chazan goes down to the floor Mm -hmm. and just seems to kind of tolerate that. And later commentators say, yeah, that seems to be following the view that it's not as big a deal to move during the Amidah. So it won't surprise you that what you then get after that are attempts to avoid the problem. And that's what the questioner is talking about oh, so can I set up a little stand that I'll whisk away Mm -hmm. that will then give the leader room to go down? Or some of this shtick of people jumping, which I always find to be very weird, to be honest, Mm -hmm. uh, but is part of that thing of, oh, maybe I (laughs) can move. Not sure it's any more or less weird than all of the other things we're doing on that day ritually. That may be true. But that's clearly grounded in an attempt of, oh, can I move and do this prostration, but keep my feet together. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's what we have in mind when we say keeping your feet together. I think it means not moving them at all. But those are all efforts to kind of find a way around this. And so, indeed, I mean, this is what I do coming out of this tradition is I always make sure that the thing I'm davening from either has wheels or there's some stand, like a music stand mm-hmm. that I'm using that then gets taken away. And then I roll down on the balls of my feet, down onto my knees, and go flat. In an effort to not move your feet. But try essentially to have my feet always be, at least some part, at least my toes, be connected to the floor continuously at the point where they were from the beginning of the Amida. And why why do you take such care to make sure you do that? It doesn't feel obvious to me, given the sources you've laid out. So I think it goes to, I thought you could also ask me, why do you bother going down, right, if it's so important? (laughs) So that you feel in that practice there's a real effort to hold two things together. On the one hand, there's something incredibly powerful about this ritual. And personally, as someone who leads most years on Yom Kippur, I would feel like it was a total loss, like something was being taken away from me if I were not going flat down. Mm -hmm. But 
what we started with in terms of some of our memories, uh, even as kids, of what it is to kind of be in one place, that also feels like overwhelmingly powerful to me. Speaking just personally, yeah, I have a strong taboo on any kind of feet moving. Yeah. And we've seen the sources that that's anchored in. And yeah, I think I don't want to break. There is, I like you almost the idea of, you know, whether it's the answering machine or being like, you know, you're locked into a certain portal with God. There's something actually I find about being, right, almost like fastened to the ground that emphasizes your kind of subservience in that moment. You are there standing before God, you've picked a position, and then you don't get to move until the ruler dismisses you, yeah. as it were, in a way that when you comfortably walk around, part of the way actually we kind of mark territory and show we're in charge is we kind of pace around where we want to. I feel like it's balancing those two in a way that I acknowledge creates a little awkwardness, the physical awkwardness of rolling down on the balls of your feet, but that is preserving these sort of, I don't know if it's two values or this value and this experience together. Yeah. One of the things that I find really powerful about this question is that both sides of the issue are piety versus piety. It's not a question of should I be strict or lenient on one thing, because it's if you're strict on one, you're sacrificing the other. The value of bowing versus the value of staying in one place are both in service of really showing kavod to God with your body physically through the way that you are holding yourself on this day during this prayer that's so important to you. So at the end of the day, you said you make sure that you can move the amud, the lectern, or you put something there that you can move. This person can't. That's where we started. So mm -hmm. what's your recommendation? Yeah. So look, like a lot of questions like this, where there's some complexity in the tradition, I think context matters, right? If you're in a community that has had a practice of setting up something like that, whisking something away, I would resist changing that because that community has really found a way to say it really matters that you stand in one place during the Amidah and really kind of structures the prayer space to keep that. I think that's very powerful. The notion of being completely rooted in one place when you pray to God, I think really creates a kind of sense of awe and purpose that has this long pedigree throughout the generations, including like the Rivash saying, yeah, sorry, you can't do that expression of piety. And, you know, there are a lot of times technical solutions that can enable you to do that. But if a community just doesn't have the ability to do that, they don't have the furniture for it or they didn't set it up, whatever it is. Right. And there are strong reasons to allow the Chazan, the prayer leader, to take small steps during the repetition in order to enable prostration. So I think we've seen there's many authorities over the generations who would have permitted that outright. Permitted the moving in order to vow. Permitted the moving. Yeah. And it's probably not worth fighting a huge battle over that. That is to say, it's one of these examples, I think there are many of these in halakha, where you would say to someone, look, ideally, when you're running an institution and setting up a space, so design it to kind of work right. with all the things you're dealing with. But sometimes someone is hired to take a job for Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, in a place where they're not local in the community. They can't control every element of what's going on. Their community is insistent that there be some kind of practice of bowing during the Amidah. And there, I think, once we see Rav Yitzhak of Dampierre, Rabbeinu Avram ben Arambam, those are authorities that are great enough to rely on that this is not worth tearing a community apart over. Great. My hope for everyone is that whichever way you 
end up practicing in the end, you find meaning and connection in your posture this coming Chagim. Responsa Radio is a project of the Hadar Institute and Jewish Public Media. Thanks to Bachi Weiler and Analia Bernstein-Simpson for producing this podcast and to Noah Gendler for editing this episode. Have a halachic question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at responsaradio at hadar.org.